Sorry, 007. Lots to be done. Are you ready to get back to work? With pleasure, M. With pleasure. Welcome to episode two of Central Intelligence Cinema. I'm Ben Esslinger, and Jason and I are very excited to bring you our review of Skyfall. Thanks again to the early adopters of our podcast. We'll try not to steer you wrong. All right, let's get into it. Take it away, Pierce. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Sol. Bond. James Bond. Ethan Hunt. Felix Leiter. Ilya Kuriaki. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. Sean, what do you think you're doing? The British and Do you expect me to talk? Yeah, baby! Recorded from a deserted island that you drove everybody off of with a fake chemical spill, it's the Central Intelligence Cinema. <laughs> I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always, the Spy Master Supreme, Ben Esslinger. Yes. Thank you, Agent Greenberg. And welcome to the first Bond edition of the CIC. Today we will be reviewing the 2012 movie and 23rd official chapter in the James Bond franchise, Skyfall. A great, great movie to get start with, since we are already building to the release of No Time to Die in April, so why not take a trip down memory lane and review a movie most consider a bright spot in the Daniel Craig era? Most? Most. 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 All right. There's... I'm on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Some people... (laughs) You can't please everybody. You know, certainly not on Twitter. <laughs> no, but I'm excited. So, uh, anyway, we should get into the Intel report. Let's get into the Intel report. Looking for a news story? Impress me. Transmitting CIC Intel dossier. They'll print anything these days. All right. So, let's get into this Intel report. Some interesting things happened. The uh, Super Bowl happened, and with the Super Bowl, we got the uh, Black Widow trailer, Woo! which was cool, but I was kind of hoping for more. I was kind of hoping for to a little bit bigger glimpse into. It, yeah, it felt I, it, it felt mostly like the original. I don't remember seeing a too many too many extra shots. Well, the, actually, I think the first one that they came out, the full actual trailer that they came out with, had more stuff in it. Yeah, this one kind of felt more like a second tease. Because they didn't really establish, I mean, oh, we're family, you know, whatever. Right, um, but. They, well, they, and it was it was shorter too, for right. obviously because it cost tons of money to <laughs> put. How it much out is there. it per minute? I don't know. <laughs> More than I make in a year. Yeah, but it was kind of cool. It was yeah. kind of nice to see I, that. I think it's going to be a good movie. If nothing else, you could put David Harbour in just about anything except Hellboy and make it a good movie. That's true. He, I I will pretty much. He's been added to the list of. I will watch him in literally anything he does. Absolutely. I mean, I actually watched Hellboy. 
because he was in it. And your thoughts on that? I will never watch that movie again, but he was in it. <laughs> was it something that you're glad you watched at oh, least God, once? No. Oh, no. I can't. Eat. The taste is still in my mouth. I had to watch uh, Ron Perlman do it the right way. Yeah. And it's still there. Yeah. It's still there. But, yeah. mm. but enough about me. Yes. <laughs> also, um, a little bit of news regarding Mission Impossible. It sort of blew up on Twitter that in Mission Impossible 7 and 8, which I guess are being shot concurrently, uh, we'll see the return of Henry Sir. Oh, man, I'm going to screw this up. Henry Cerny? Let's try Zerny. 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 Henry Zerny as yeah. Kittredge, who hasn't played the role since 1996's first Mission Impossible movie. Maybe some of our listeners weren't even born then. Spoiler alert, he was the bad guy in that one. Just, you know, it's 96, <laughs> 20 years, you limits up. Deal with it. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's kind of interesting that he's going to be in there. And uh, I guess it looks like MI7 will be arriving in theaters July of 2021. And uh, in August of 2022, we'll get MI8. So... <laughs> That's fun. And then also during the Super Bowl, we got the No Time to Die Super Bowl trailer. Yay! Man, it was so good. And I was kind of surprised that there was kind of a lukewarm reception to it amongst a lot of people in the Bond community. Mm. Whereas I thought, you know, everybody was saying when the glider slides back out out of the airplane, it reminded them too much of, oh God, I don't even remember which one. It was one of the Brosnan ones. It might have even been the dreaded uh, Die Another Day. I can't remember. Possibly. I, I think I know what you're I talking about. I think it about. is Die Another Day. And so everyone was just groaning over that. But I thought that was actually kind of a cool moment. I don't know. I think it's cool. Like I told you, I hope it's called Little Nelly because we yeah. haven't had a good name for something. It needs a nickname. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I think the only gripe I had with that trailer was the fact that you didn't really see anything new except for the plane dropping out of the plane. Yeah. Everything else you've kind of already seen before. You, you did get Remy Malik without the mask on, but. Right. For the listeners out there, and by the way, we have listeners, and I'm really excited about that. Well, of course we before do. Before I go any we further. Have many interesting things to say. We have, yeah. To 40 some odd people. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, well, I mean, that's just downloads. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, people, people could just be listening straight up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So whoever's out there listening, thank you. That's very nice of you to be an early adopter of the CIC. Absolutely. So that's kind of cool. Um, shit, where was I? <laughs> what was I going to say? I, I don't know. If I was a mind reader, then I would be, we'd be filming this in Las Vegas in a much nicer house. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's just move on. So we totally forgot to discuss Billie Eilish singing the Bond theme last time we were here. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I wanted to get your take because I know it's not going to be as optimistic as mine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, despite what you might think, I actually like Billie Eilish a lot. Okay, cool. So I don't, I I think it's a good choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm curious to see what the song is going to be like. Right. Because she's writing with her brother. So it's going to be her song. And it did sound like they did do some work with uh, Hans. So there might be some inner collaboration there. Yeah. And I mean, she's got 
the right voice she really to sing does. a James Bond song. Right. She got that deep throaty. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's without it's, the cigarette smoke, but she can sing it, baby. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. And I think too many people are focused on like her song, bad guy and, mm-hmm. and thinking that it's going to be all do, 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 you know, uh-huh. all silly and stuff where, if you listen to some of her other songs that are more, you know, slower and mm-hmm. you know more sincere, that's where that's where the juice is, right there. Yeah, she she's got range, despite what some people think. Yeah, and I think it's going to be an amazing song. Will it be Adele amazing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Adele was sort of like born to sing she a really, James Bond song. She really was, but. It could still be, it's definitely going to be better than a Madonna version of a James oh, Bond song. Oh, God, yeah. And I did have, man, I really had my hopes up that they'd get Lana Del Rey. Because if you've ever heard her album, Honeymoon, it is, there's there's two songs on that album, especially 24, which was rumored to be the one that she submitted for the 24th Bond movie. Okay. She submitted it, at you know, like right before Sam Smith. Sam God Spectre, um, <laughs> which is my literally my least favorite song of any Bond movie. Well, I can't really argue with you on that. Yeah. So, but the only one that even comes close to being as bad as Sam Smith's song, quite honestly, is All Time High. <laughs> I can't stand that song. That song drives me insane. Anyway, I'm very, I'm very excited for Billy Idol. Yes. though. I'm very optimistic. Um, she's going to be performing at the Oscars on Sunday the 9th. So that's that's in two days. So, hey, so if anybody listens to this podcast right away, <laughs> you'll have the skinny. Um, <laughs> if not, check it out on YouTube. I'm sure it'll be there. Yeah. Although, here's the thing. She's performing at the Oscars, but we don't know if she's actually going to roll out the No Time to Die song. The most recent rumors were that she was going to be singing for the immemorium part of the show. And it'd be a little awkward if we had a, if her, she's singing a song called no time to die (laughs) during the immemorium. Or brilliant. Or brilliant. If it's like a soft, you know, sensitive song, who knows? Maybe she can make it work, but I don't know. (laughs) Um, also in the uh, in the world of Bond, Omaze is doing a fundraiser where you can win a trip to London for the No Time to Die premiere and meet Naomi Harris. Naturally, I entered. I would hope so. <laughs> so who knows? Fingers crossed. Okay, so now comes to a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, <laughs> so in our first episode, I kind of I kind of went off on uh, during the last Intel report actually. I kind of said some bad things about Heineken. Well, I'm here to tell you, I might have been turned into a believer because <laughs> during dry January, I did a dry January and I was trying a bunch of non-alcoholic beers to sort of tide me over to keep me from, from breaking. Mm-hmm. And I was at, in a place, I was in a restaurant where the only non-alcoholic beer they had was a Heineken. And I'm like, all right. Just, just bring one. And you know what? It was actually the best one. I tried like four different non-alcoholic beers. That was easily my favorite. So, so there you go. That's my mea culpa. Is that how you say it? Mea culpa? That's how I would say it. That's my mea culpa. Sorry, Heineken. I actually really like your non-alcoholic beer. It's pretty good. So there you go. But your alcoholic beer? 
Rubbish. Well, <laughs> you know, it's been a while, too. Maybe I should go back and see if my tastes have changed should, over the years. You should give it another try. Indeed, indeed. And then one more final uh, housekeeping thing. I wanted to say thank you to uh, David Zaritsky of the Bond Experience, the website, YouTube channel, slash Facebook. He's everywhere. And he's sort of the, uh, he's sort of the clothing guy and brands. That's sort of his focus on the Bond community. All right. He knows, he knows all about all the clothes that Bond has ever worn in every single movie, and he knows all the brands, and he's in good with all these brands now and stuff. And because he's in good with all these brands and stuff, he held a contest over the holidays where you could win a pair of Varney Glacier sunglasses. <laughs> the, uh, the Varney sunglasses with the little hoods on the side. And I entered just sort of not even thinking that I would ever win. And lo and behold, I won the sunglasses, the Varney sunglasses. It's pretty so fantastic. It, it really kind of is. So thank you to the Bond Experience and thank you, Varney. And with that, I guess we'll uh, we'll get into Skyfall. Woo! Where are we going? Back in time. So, Skyfall, released in 2012, directed by Sam Mendes, who also did American Beauty, which maybe we should just not talk about too much. Um, <laughs> also the director, obviously, of Spectre, which Jason and I have a slight difference of opinion on. And the newly released 1917, which I'm very excited to go see. I still haven't seen it. Me as well. That one, that one, looks, that one looks good. The idea of an entire movie that's all a one-shot. Is kind insanity. of insanity. It is insanity. I can't even imagine how much rehearsing they must have done for that. Sam Mendez is Mendez loves his one shots. So he's just trying to make the ultimate movie <laughs> so that nobody will ever try and do it because he knows how insane it is. Yeah. Written by uh, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, the usual suspects, along with John Logan. At this point, however, it is important to point out that Mendez and Craig himself both had a heavy hand in the final product. And I feel like this is where Daniel Craig started to kind of throw his weight around like, well, if you're going to keep me around, I want my say. Yeah, absolutely. So. No, 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 no. James Bond would do this. Not that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the photography, I, I'm just going to jump right in. I just love the photography in, in this movie. This is, now I will say this, this is my favorite photography of all the Bond movies, hands down. Oh, yeah. It's, it's shot gorgeously. It is just, uh, Roger Deakins just did an absolutely amazing job between the Shanghai scene, the Macau scene, and everything in Scotland, really. But you don't have to do much to make Scotland look good because yeah. it's just a gorgeous <laughs> place to be. Nominated for an Academy Award that year for uh, cinematography. Did not win, but he did win in the LA Film Critics Association. So that's kind of cool. Budget of $200 million, which is so crazy to think about, you know, after we reviewed Atomic Blonde and to see a budget of $200 million. It's insane, but the movie went on to make one point over one point one billion dollars at the box office and became the eighth highest grossing film ever made. So not too shabby. Yeah, it seems like a good investment on their part. Yeah, I guess they got the return they needed. They're so. probably saying, "Oh, we still have a broke even yet." Sorry on those royalties. Yeah, well, it's funny. I was actually going to talk about this. 
Well, I'm almost there. We're almost to music. Um, We're not using notes. This is completely unscripted. Oh, completely unscripted. (laughs) But I wanted to talk about uh, something I saw on Twitter that Dan Gale from James Bond Radio said, which is an interesting, interesting question. Is the reason we don't hear the Bond theme much in movies these days because Monty Norman charges too much for royalties? Hmm. But if you have a budget of $200 million... Yeah, you got to think that Eon has something set up for that. Yeah. They don't have to worry about that. Yeah, I think that's more of a creative decision than anything. Because definitely in Skyfall, I mean, we don't hear the true classic one. Until about halfway through the movie. Even more than halfway through, until he opens up the garage door and pulls out the Aston. Which seemed like he was saving it for just that moment, which I think is amazing. So I, I think it was more of an intent on Newman's part than anything else. Yeah. I think it works in Skyfall. It doesn't work as well in Spectre. I think Spectre, because Spectre is so campy, at least in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you. On I, I think because Spectre is more campy, it needed more Bond music in it to drive it forward and, and give you that, that Bond feeling. That's instead. fair. So if you're going to go campy, you got that. You got to have that Bond theme in there, at least for me. <laughs> Yeah, Thomas Newman did the score. I think he previously did Shawshank Redemption and Little Women, amongst a long library of others, Little Nemo. And he's also the nephew of Randy Newman, which Randy Newman would not have done a good job scoring this movie. (laughs) Um, There probably would have been too many words about little people and being friends, and I don't think that works in a Bond movie very well. And also, uh, I saw, looking at the IMDb, he's actually the son of Alfred Newman. Not Alfred E. Newman. Not Alfred E. Newman from Mad Magazine, (laughs) but Alfred Newman who was one of 20th Century Fox's composers and is actually the guy who wrote the 20th Century Fox fanfare. Wow. Which would have been cool if they were the ones that were the producing partner with Eon on this because then you could have had Newman and Newman. Wow. Back to back. Yeah. But that didn't happen, so never mind. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, I think in this movie, Newman does a really good job for the most part. He loses his way (laughs) in one little moment, at least for me. He has a Batman moment <laughs> when Bond jumps to grab the undercarriage of the elevator when he's tracking uh, Patrice. Patrice, mm-hmm. and then you hear na 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 na. It's like, oh come on, man! There's also that little small moment when um, Kincaid and M go into the bolt hole, the priest hole. Oh yeah. It plays again like, oh, they're going into the cave now. So we have to put that music It's the Bat Cave. That's right. (laughs) The Bomb Cave. I do think that, and I know this is a review about Skyfall, but man, I really felt like he lost his inspiration in Spectre. It just felt like a lot of rehash. But whatever. (laughs) Um, Got a great, great theme song from Adele. Easily top five. Well, maybe top man. Just about top five, maybe top, at least top 10. I say it's definitely the best uh, Bond song that wasn't sung by Shirley Bassey. Okay. Yeah, I'll take that. So let's get on to the actors. Obviously, Daniel Craig is back for his third. Wasn't super a fan of how kind of old they made him look. I mean, I understand that they were trying to kind of go for that. And I think maybe that has to do with his agreement disagreement with eon as to whether or not he was going to continue and make more movies right but if you know you're going to go on and make another movie with daniel craig don't make him old but at the same time i understand that 
as the movie goes on, he sort of gets rejuvenated. He gets it's true revitalized. It's it takes the whole movie, but it feels like maybe that's part of the reason why they cut his hair so short and he didn't look quite as suave as he normally does and all that sort of thing. Anyway, we have of course M who I would say in this movie is the main Bond girl, since we don't have that long-lasting relationship as far as a romantic one goes with Bond. M really is the character that he spends the most time with. And probably her best, to a degree, I was I was sitting here and I was thinking about how like it almost feels like her story, not Bond's. It totally is. Yeah. Because her character not only gets way more fleshed out in this, as far as being less one-dimensional, more... Or two-dimensional, I guess I should say. But she's the driving force of everything that happens in this movie, either directly or indirectly. Right. So you don't really have a James Bond movie without all of the things that she's doing to keep him going. Yeah. And then we've got Severine, uh, played by Bernice Marlowe. I thought she was wildly underused, um, despite doing a really good acting job for the time that she was on screen. Oh, yeah. She sold her character very well. Yeah, The that nervous... Trying to look like you're having a good time, but right, you know that your life is being threatened at every single moment. Yeah, she totally conveyed, I'm terrified and confused and everything at the same time. And felt like, like you said, there's this character and this actress that essentially is just a plot point to get you from point C to point D. Yeah. Which, great, you know, if you can hire good actresses and actors to do even things like that, it just elevates the film. But... I kind of wish, yeah, maybe they'd gotten a little bit more out of that character. If you could have weaved something in there, I don't know. I mean, it would have added another 20 minutes to a half hour in this movie, and that might have been 20 minutes to a half an hour longer than it needed to be. And it's already, I believe, the longest Bond movie that exists. At 220, it wouldn't surprise me. So We have the uh, first appearance of Moneypenny, uh, Q, and Mallory in the Craig era. Uh, The second appearance of Rory Kinnear back as Tanner. I, of course, am a... Very big fan of Money Penny. Money Penny. <laughs> I, I do. I do like. I do like Naomi Harris. What's funny is, is <laughs> this is how much I like Naomi Harris. When way back when Pirates of the Caribbean came out, <laughs> and she was that whatever she was, that witch lady or whatever, yep. and, and her teeth were all blacked and everything. Yep. I was like, that witch lady's kind of hot, <laughs> even with the black and teeth. She's kind of hot. <laughs> I'm like, who is that? And then I never knew. And then I saw this. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the witch lady. No wonder. I didn't even I, I did not even put that together until you and I talked about it. So yeah. <laughs> what a difference makeup makes. Yes, indeed. Fun little fact about Ben Wishaw's Q. In the first draft of the movie, titled Nothing Is Forever, he is described as a rather shabby and tubby quartermaster. <laughs> didn't really go that way, did it? No, they decided to just go a totally different route indeed. and get like a young, a young guy to which makes sense, though, for the storyline. Oh, he's, absolutely. Because the whole movie is this old versus young, experience versus youth thing. So it works that he's who he is. Ralph Fiennes is great as Mallory. I'm really looking forward in No Time to Die. You've seen the trailer, right? Yes, numerous so, times. So I love that he's packed on the pounds. He's going to be like... He's going to be like Hefty M. <laughs> like, 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 I'm excited for Hefty M. It's going to be MXXL. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's just like a, a little, maybe they gave him padding to make him look more executive, but 
Whatever the case is, <laughs> I'm in for that. <laughs> I'm all in for that. And then we have Javier Bardem as Silva, who is absolutely amazing. Oh, yeah. He is way up there on my list of favorite Bond villains now. It's definitely he, my favorite. He he just portrays menace and insanity and just everything that you want in a Bond villain and more. And it probably gives mo- the most amount of depth. He's not just a caricature. He really just brings it. And it's kind of funny a little bit. He's, you know, he's engaging. Those idiots at Q-Branch with... <laughs> he's engaging you want to keep watching him on the screen yeah, yeah. you get some bond villains that are kind of yeah you're like okay i'm 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 not done. really feeling menaced <laughs> yeah whereas he can pull off both he can be really charismatic and at the same time really frightening i mean have you ever seen somebody get stabbed with a knife that was that angry and pissed off about it yeah, it was like he was more angry than he was I'm dying, but I'm mad that you stabbed me in the back before I got to do what I wanted to do. (laughs) It almost looked like he eye rolled at the end. Like he was like, (laughs) oh God, really? Dead. (laughs) Which of course would have been totally in play with the character. Absolutely. Yeah, it was perfect. And then Kincaid, Albert Finney, rest in peace. Man, what a great addition. So who is it we're supposed to be fighting? No we in it, Kincaid. This is not your fight. Try and stop me, you jumped up little shit. I think the only thing that would have been better for that character is they somehow managed to convince Sean Connery to come out of retirement for one last movie. Yeah, that would have been something else, but he probably would have asked for an outrageous amount of money. He'd have been worth it. It might might have been worth it. (laughs) Because I know... They brought him back to do that voice acting for that video game. Mm-hmm. And apparently he asked for a lot of money. Well, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Sean Connery is James Bond. Exactly. So maybe you could ask for a few more ducats than the guy that sounds like Sean Connery. Right. So some more fun facts. The original treatment was called Once Upon a Spy that revolved around a past indiscretion of M's in Russia with a KGB agent. 30 years. <laughs> what? <laughs> Every, doesn't that basically the plot of Red or Red 2? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was a, a side gig of Purvis and Wade. Who knows? I should actually check when I get home on my DVD and see if that's the case. So it revolved around a past indiscretion of M's in Russia with a KGB agent. 30 years after the affair following M's lover's death, his son, a corrupt Russian oligarch, blackmails M. And she sends Bond on a mission to make a payoff, which ultimately leads to Bond being forced to kill M at the end of the story. Mendes was not a fan of this story. and I, I wonder why. Yeah. So, But did ask to keep the idea of having M die at the end. So, And then also one fun little fact, uh, during the Shanghai scene, when they're up in that skyscraper with all the glass everywhere, apparently people kept walking into or bumping into panes of glass because it was so hard to see. So that's fun. <laughs> you imagine having to be the guy that had to keep that set clean. Oh my God, get all the smudges off. Uh huh. I hope he was paid well. The part, the part where Daniel Craig is opening the door, you know, and he stops because Patrice, he thinks Patrice sees him. Yeah. And I'm like, no, use the handle. <laughs> Don't put your hand on that glass. Because then it's like, all right, cut. All right, go again. Wait, <laughs> clean it off. <laughs> all right, reverse angle. Wait, clean it off. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah, my wife, she watched it with me, and, and she was like, isn't that the same place from John Wick 3? I'm like, no. 
But I could see where you would think it was. Yeah, with all the bouncing light and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some tropes, of course. And we got another list. <laughs> Two movies in a row that we're doing that have a list of agents. But at least this list, there's the- consequences and people get perished. Absolutely. People get died because of the list, but really... A list. <laughs> a list. A list. The Nobody other, the <laughs> makes a list and puts it someplace where somebody could steal it. Okay, I'm yeah, off my well, soapbox. Well, and the other thing, the other thing about the list is it's on a laptop and it's you know taken out of the laptop and put into some sort of protective case or whatever. My thought is, wouldn't it be more convenient to put it on like a thumbnail drive? Exactly. I'm just spitballing here but you know i mean there's encryptions i'm sure and that was the whole reason that they had to get it off the hard drive i don't know but here's the thing if you didn't have a list on a computer there wouldn't have been anything for anybody to steal in the first place right (laughs) who is compiling all these lists why are they putting it down anywhere why would you put anything any of that down anywhere yeah (laughs) who knows um so a couple other spy tropes uh, allowing yourself to be captured to meet the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's always a good one. And then, of course, the disfigured villain and a former agent. In oh, one. Yes. It's a double trope. It is a double trope. But those I'm okay with. I kind of like the disfigured villain thing. It kind of... And it really works with his character. Oh, it absolutely It actually does. plays. It's not just silly. Well, the, the whole reason for the disfigurement adds to the whole reason he's doing what he's doing in the first because place. Because of them. It has something to do with the character, not just, let's make him interesting. Right. By giving him a weird scar with a circle around his eye. Or let's but, make him have tears of blood. Yeah. For no particular No particular reason. reason. Other than just a, a you know, medical thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even though that's my favorite Bond movie of all time. I will still admit that that's, a, that's just plucked out of thin air. Anyway. So let's get into it, the pre-title sequence. So we join the mission in progress with Bond and, quote, Eve, since we don't know who this person is other than Eve at this point, in pursuit of the disk drive with the list. The um, list. <laughs> so uh, we're immediately introduced to the first in a series of events that kind of set up the premise that M has been too reckless, that being Ronson is shot he comes upon ronson being shot and then she tells bond to to just get going so he hops in with uh, money penny and conveniently patrice is right in front of them which i i still i just so he didn't just get away while you stopped to pick him up he's just right i mean maybe it's traffic they were in istanbul it's not like they have roads like we do right exactly it's not like three lanes of you know pure joy or something (laughs) (laughs) so they have a little shootout with a bit of the old hide behind the fruit stand (laughs) yeah because fruit is definitely bulletproof absolutely the first thing i look for in a gunfight is where is the fruit stand because you know you're gonna walk away (laughs) that's fine so then the race moves to motorcycles on rooftops, and uh, which is fun, actually. The only problem is this is where we get what is probably the first of three questionable CGI moments in the movie, which is... Bad Daniel Craig face. <laughs> yeah, grumpy Daniel Craig face on a motorcycle. So then they go through the little... Um, the bazaar. So they go through the bazaar, and Money Penny tries to head him off at the pass, and... The chase ends up moving to the top of the train, and from there, uh, Bond jumps onto the train as well, and he gets in that bulldozer, 
and he gets a bit of shrapnel uh, that sort of bounces off something. <laughs> well, yeah, because that's the weird thing. It was an armor-piercing bullet. They even point out in the movie, it should have taken your arm off. And he's just like, well, I'm, I'm James Bond. Which is also sort of interesting that when the bulldozer's back is to Patrice, like the bullets don't go through that piece of metal, mm-hmm. which, hmm, something doesn't must add have been, up. Must have been armored glass, but not armored everything else. Right, right, right. And then... Probably my favorite part of this whole chase scene is when is after he digs the bulldozer scoop into the next train and he goes across it and jumps down in there and he does the little suit adjustment. It was just a great Bond moment. Absolutely. Just a, just a nice little Bond moment there. And then I'm just changing carriages yeah. as he walks through. <laughs> one thing I like about Daniel Craig era one-liners is they're more subtle. They're not so hammed up. They're more believable and they're more charming. Yeah, well, Just you, because they're not so ham-fisted. Well, I think a lot of that had, particularly with this movie, but I think in general, I think it has to do with the fact that he has somebody in his ear a lot more often than the other Bonds did. That is true. He's actually having conversations with people where they're coming out. Yeah. So it has to sound more conversational or else you'd have to imagine the person on the other end of that earpiece would be rolling their eyes Right, they'd be the like, time. what? <laughs> Are you trying to be funny? Well, this actually brings up an interesting point because I was thinking about there's a lot of discussion about, they call, some people call it the Scooby-Doo gang as far as Bond having somebody in his ear the whole time and working alongside Money Penny and M and everybody else mm-hmm. who's got an earpiece in and all that sort of thing versus old school Bond who's just out on his own doing his own thing, one man against the world or whatever. But I don't have a problem with it. I, I feel like it's more realistic I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean. But I do understand it does sort of alter the Bond format, and it and it also creeps into, dare I say, Mission Impossible territory. It does. And I think the biggest problem here is that in this day and age, a mission like that would have been handled by some kind of a tactical team. Right. You wouldn't have put a double O onto that mission. Now, That's a could, good point, because you, if it's going to be a Bond movie, then maybe keep it just bond because somehow it's more realistic than having three instead of a million guys out there right yeah and i think that you know i can see from m's perspective she's going to put the person she trusts most to clean up her mess sure so to speak but this whole earpiece thing it's the biggest problem i have with this part of the movie mm-hmm. because this part of the movie drives a lot of what happens right. everybody's talking to everybody this whole time money but he can't say bond duck Right, exactly. Wasn't he not listening to her while they were talking? Did she change frequencies? Better not let Bond hear what I'm talking about. Well, and then on top of it, he heard, well, unless unless he read the report afterwards or something. Pretty but, sure you heard M. But he says, after he go, finally meets her again and says, you said, take what is it you said? Take the bloody shot? Yeah. So, I mean, all that really took was he knew what was going on. Why was he even fighting? Yeah, it's like. Drop to the ground, let James, her shoot the guy. duck, now. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Money Penny's put on the spot to try and take Patrice out. Somehow doesn't say anything to Bond and hits him. Boom, fall, river, which... He I, should have I, died I, from the fall. He should have died from the fall, and then he should have died again when he went over the waterfall. Yeah, into the... Yeah, and then should have died from his injuries, should have died from... The, <laughs> it's all the alcohol in his system. It keeps his body from breaking down, That's I right. Think. It's like, he's just loose. He's just loose the whole time. <laughs> That's it's right. just loose. I got this. I got this. You know, actually... Never mind. I'll tell you later. <laughs> it's, it's just a story about a guy that survived a crash because he was very loose from I, yeah, cold I, medicine, actually. Ooh. 
Yeah. So not the usual thing. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. He wasn't self-medicating in a bad way. He was self-medicating <laughs> in a good way. Exactly. So a couple of things that I always find uh, annoying about scenes of this nature hmm. is the rampant damage that's being caused wherever they go. Yeah. There's never any accountability for the fact that they've demolished all these cars. Yeah. Somebody got injured at the very least during this whole exchange, if not killed. Unless it drives a plot point and nobody ever talks about it. Right. Because they, they do bring it up, you know, if you think about in Casino Royale, they bring up when he blows up the embassy. But you kind of have to because he blew up an embassy. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a scale. Yeah, but at the same time, it's because it drives the plot forward. Right. And I realize I'm, I'm overanalyzing. But no, but still, it's, it's in a the, thing. In the real world, <laughs> right. somebody has to be held accountable for all of this stuff, right? <laughs> Who's going to pay for all that? Is, that? is that what like MI7 is? They're the cleanup crew for MI6? They walk in there, hello, it's, it's a thousand pounds. Off you go. Off you go. <laughs> oh, just go ahead and take that Audi then. We're not using it anymore. Right. Off you go. Off you go. Off you go. <laughs> I mean, it's a third world country-ish. I get it. Yeah. But that's one of those things that always stands out of my head. You know, if I'm if I'm driving in a car in my car and James Bond runs into me with a Land Rover, I'm gonna be like, I want my money. Yeah. You ruined my car, James Bond. (laughs) What the hell, James? Come on, James, give me your car. Can I have your car? That'll be a good trade. Give me the Aston, Jimbo. Come on, buddy. So from there, we go into the title graphics, which are actually really good. I think it's a contender for the best, at least in the Craig era. It's closer to the kind of just the classic Bond title treatments as opposed to the the first two, which they definitely went out of their way to kind of be different and yeah. sort of new. And I think you needed to have that classic graphic treatment with the song. Yeah, because the song is, yeah, the Adele song is so such a classic sounding Bond song. Well, you know... The one thing about the Bond ones is because they're so long, they really cram in a lot of credits in there. Right. You know, manager for production design, stuff you normally see at the end of the movie. Right. Assistant to Mr. Craig. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I used to think that was how all English movies were until I realized really the only English movies I had ever watched were James Bond movies and right. they needed to fill space. Right. Because if you watch a regular English production, mm. that stuff all shows up at the end like they do in American films. But just like, wow, there's a lot of people that make these movies. <laughs> Much more so than the one than the American movies. Yeah, I mean English people are really busy. So once we get out of the graphics and back into the story, it has basically been three months since the incident where he, where he gets shot off the train. And we sort of find out all that's happened since losing the list. Agents have been exposed and killed. MI6 has been attacked. And the intent appears to be a personal attack on M, who is about to be sacked. And then, meanwhile, Bond is assumed dead. But, of course, he's in bed with a woman. A woman. drinking a beer initially i didn't realize how much time had passed and so i was sort of like wait a minute he's just fine he's just you know up and at him and then i realized it had only been three months and i'm like wait a minute why is he not why is he up and at him (laughs) yeah why is he fine three months is you got shot off of a train fell what was that 70 feet more than 100 maybe 100 into a river and then off a waterfall, three months. You're just ready to go. <laughs> well, I don't know if he was quite 
Yeah. Ready to go. Ready. But he was certainly more mobile than he should have been. Well, he was ready to go. Well. That's for sure. Hello. <laughs> but yeah, it just seemed like the first time I saw this movie, my first inclination was, okay, as soon as we get done with these credits, I'm going to see Bond in a hospital because that's the only thing that would have made sense. Absolutely. And then suddenly he's just, you know, in a little villa, in a little hut somewhere. So, eh, okay. I'll take it. It's fine. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> anyway, so then we get this cool little uh, drinking scene with the scorpion. It's kind of silly and pointless, but fun in a very Indiana Jones sort of way. Yeah, I was going to say, nobody showed up looking for the headpiece, the Staff of Ra, so it ended up a little less fiery, I guess, than that one did. <laughs> right. There was there was no fight that broke out or no, you know, no. the bar didn't burn down or anything like that. <laughs> so anyway, while he's out there, he finds out that MI6 got blowed up uh so he goes back at this point mi6 is in new digs we discover obviously that bond is a mess but they really play that sort of thing up with the physicals and and the psychological tests and that's sort of the next sort of thing that sort of that i kind of tripped on a little bit was the whole psych test uh with skyfall and and sort of getting into Bond's past. And I kind of, I just, I guess I just kind of wonder how much people really want to know about Bond's past. I think that M's past is more pertinent because it has to do with her sense of recklessness and why she's being canned and why all these things are coming back to sort of haunt her. Bond's past doesn't serve as much. It does if you look at it as a stepping stone for the next movie. I suppose so. Yeah, for the next movie... Yeah. But has there ever been any kind of establishment of what Ian Fleming's past was for Bond? Only that his parents died in a a climbing accident. That sort of thing. So that carries over. But yeah. There wasn't a whole like James Bond, the origin story type. Right. I mean, they're building that now in the comic books, but that's, that's a whole different ball of wax there. Right. So. We get introduced to Mallory, who no one is quite sure if they like him yet. We don't we don't know if we like him yet. Bond Shrapnel sort of helps identify Patrice, which leads to the next mission. And his arm is suddenly fine. <laughs> yep. Cuts it himself, mind you. Yeah. Didn't go to an Didn't... MI6 doctor and say, can I get this taken out, please? No, it's... I'm just going to... I got a knife. I'm, I'm gonna... Who sewed him up? Molly Warmflesh. Somebody? But yeah, from that point on, taking the shrapnel out, man, that arm is just fine. Oh, yeah. I'm punching, I'm swinging. Well, he still got a little shaky shaky hand with the shooting. Yeah, but I think that was more about the alcohol than it was about the pain. (laughs) Yeah, the alcohol and the the pain pills or whatever he's taking. So from here, we meet Q in a great, great scene in the uh, National Gallery that plays up the whole old versus young thing that goes through this whole movie. We get the, the great line about the the inevitability of time and... Always makes me feel a little melancholy. Grand old warship being ignominiously hauled away for scrap. The inevitability of time, don't you think? What do you see? A bloody big ship. Which I went and saw. I, I Really? Yes. When I went to London a um, little over a year and a half now, I finally got to, over to London and went to National Gallery and I found that painting and I made my wife take a picture with my back to camera and me facing 
There wasn't a seat there, though. There's no longer a, a bench that you can sit at to look at it because it's... Perhaps there never but, was. Yes. Movie magic. Mysterious. So, yeah, he gets his gun and his radio. <laughs> Not exactly Christmas. Um, so then we get to, from there, then he heads off to Shanghai, where uh, Bond is off to find and uh, eventually kill Patrice. But first, Batman. <laughs> so he <laughs> he follows Patrice to that tower, and he jumps onto the, uh, grabs the underside of the, of the elevator, which he actually did. Um, granted, it was inside Pinewood. Did so you then, notice that, that Bond let two people get killed before he even got out of the car? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> but, I, I, no, I, I think it's great because that's what his character, you're not there to save people. You're there to finish the mission. Right. So, two security guards, pop, pop, done. Then he walks in. Yeah, doesn't call anybody, though. You know, well, no. <laughs> I mean, from his standpoint, the, Patrice was actually doing him a favor. I don't have to explain to these guys either. Yeah, spies, man. <laughs> They don't give a shit. Hell no. <laughs> so then we're up in the skyscraper. Just beautiful photography everywhere. The lights bouncing off all the glass and everything. And then we see Patrice setting up for his kill. And I, I know I read somewhere that the painting that that guy is sitting in front of was supposedly an actual painting that a famously stolen painting or whatever. It was like, and it was, they did a reproduction of that just for that, you know, yeah. little details. Man. Art major me should know who that painting was. <laughs> I think I know who painted it, but also did you notice no blood got on the painting, even though he shot him from behind Yeah, and he was right in front of it. He knew, he knew just where to go. <laughs> he had to shoot it through a teeny tiny little hole. That little teeny. I want that little device though. That was pretty that cool. Cut through the, you know, the inch thick glass or whatever. It was a good gadget actually. It was a good gadget moment. Why did the bad guy have a better gadget than Bond did? Honestly, I feel like the bad guys in this movie have all the good stuff. It's true. And and quite honestly, I kind of feel like the bad guy kind of sort of wins to a degree. To a degree. He definitely wins more than most of the other ones do. Yeah. He's the bad guy with a good guy gun. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and we get this great one fluid ongoing push in on the shot as you see that silhouette fight going on with Bond and Patrice. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's so well done. So anyway, yeah, Patrice dies. One bump and a thud. That's one what you bump. get. <laughs> yeah, that's all, that's all you get. So we still don't know who he's working for or who might have the list or who's out to get M, but he gets the clue in the form of a poker chip. And we also get our first glimpse of Severin. From here, Bond heads to Macau where he has a brief and... Oh, so lovely interlude with Money Penny. That shaving scene is the stuff of <laughs> dreams and magic. And all right, I'll stop. I'll stop. Um, <laughs> and Money Penny, who he suspects is both helping him and spying on him for Mallory. And a fun fact in that little shaving moment, according to Naomi Harris, the moment where Bond unbuttons her blouse was actually improvised by Craig. Which, I mean. I can't blame him. <laughs> so so they go to the casino and Bond cashes in the chip and in turn is able to meet Severin. And so they have their little moment at the bar and you sort of, you really get that sense of where Severin's at and how frightened she is. And, and we learn a little bit about her. And then we get the, uh, the fight scene as he's leaving with the uh, henchmen. And that's where we sort of run into the next part two of bad CGI <laughs> in a Bond movie with the uh, Komodo dragons. Although I will say, 
I didn't mind them when they're just walking around. It's only when he steps on one to jump up and grab yes. the top of the bridge. It's the only part that's a little... Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. But I did kind of like the little moment of comedy where he's kind of up over the shoulders of that henchman guy. Right. He's pointing like, And he's you pointing this? at this, oh my God, wait, that's a Komodo dragon. Holy shit. <laughs> so that's kind of a fun little moment of humor, which... It's kind of rare in the in the Craig. Yeah, it was definitely felt like a, a Roger Moore moment. But it's a good Roger Moore moment. Yeah, oh absolutely. But but it, w- it wasn't like a you know a slide whistle or Oh god no. <laughs> Something like that. Now PS, be ready for a lot of slide whistles in the new movie. <laughs> so after that he hands the uh, money to the money penny. And I also think this is kind of a weird moment too, because he just gives her the money, and she helped him beat up those henchmen. And he just leaves and, well, hope you're okay, Money Penny. I'll see ya. <laughs> hope you make it back to the hotel okay. <laughs> well, they got the four heavies, you know. He just That's told her true. to go bet it all on red. That's true. She was smart. She's like, the hell no. I'm taking this with I'm me. I'm taking my euros with me, buddy. Damn right. So then from there, he uh, finds his way into uh, Severine's shower. After uh, identifying that she was a sex slave. So. That's right. Classic Bond. <laughs> well, she was a sex slave. I should take advantage of her. Yeah. <laughs> How is that problematic at all? <laughs> From there, that's when we kind of get into Act 2. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And, you know, you get the whole big opening scene, full sale, yeah. big musical fanfare. Yeah. Bond standing, or she's standing in a Bond pose at the front. Very much so. Right? Yeah. Even my wife remarked in that, it's like, oh, so she's James Bond right now. I'm like, no, she's just done with James Bond now. And right. She's feeling pretty good about herself, I think. She had her fun, and she knows she's probably going to die soon. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> we all know she is because she slept with James Bond. But, right. Uh, yeah. And you know, he walks out, and he's got the shirt on, and... You know, she's like, we could turn it all around, but no. <laughs> no, no. No, even Bond knows that's not going to happen. Like, um, yeah, you should turn around and that's, no, yeah. Just keep looking forward. <laughs> so they're on the boat. They're headed towards the mystery island, which uh, uh, Silva has basically co-opted by getting everybody to leave, by generating a fake chemical scare or something like that. Right. Doesn't explain why it looks like a bomb was dropped on the entire island. Yeah. They never really explained that. It doesn't look deserted. It looks like it was blown up. It does. Although I will say in a little bit of like side note, that island was in fact abandoned. Like the real island that that was filmed on. It was a city and it was abandoned, but it was abandoned a long time ago. So so it took a long time for it to look like that. So that part, yeah. If that was something that happened recently, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe everybody really wanted to leave. Maybe they didn't really need to come up with the excuse of a chemical spill of some right. kind. Who knows? I don't know. But I mean, who knows? It served its purpose. It did. There's plenty of other things in this movie. If you want to pick on them, you could pick on indeed, them. Aside indeed. From that. It has oh. a good look to it, though. I, I I do like the. It's unique for sure. It's it's a lot of eye candy to look at. So. Absolutely. And so they get taken off the boat. They get escorted out to the island. They get separated. Severine goes one direction. They take Bond in to go meet Silva. Mm-hmm. The cut into that. Okay, I'm just going to say right now, if that's your server room, it seems kind of warm. A little warm, probably a lot of dust. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to criticize because I'm not right. the evil genius here. But from what I know, maybe not the best place to put what you're looking for. Well, and here's the other thing. 
I wonder if this is really his main base or if it's just one of many. Because if you know that you're going to get captured by MI6, right? why would you let them take you on your main base? Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. this so, could just be one of many for Silva. Or maybe it was never designed to be functional at all. Maybe it was all for show. Could've Silva's been. got wheels turning within wheels within he wheels. Really, he really does. He is the genius in this right. movie. And, you know, that brings us to where they first meet, which I think is the best shot in the entire movie. The walk? Yep. Oh, Comes God. down that stupid elevator that makes no sense at all. <laughs> and times the entire monologue. Perfectly. As the camera is pulling in so that by the time he gets to Bond, the camera stops and they're right where they need to be at. I don't know how many times they had to rehearse that. Part of me hopes Javier Bardem got it in one shot. Oh, my God. And just at the end, Daniel Craig busted out in laughter and they had to redo it all over again. (laughs) That'd be amazing. But I mean... Javier Bardem beats the living crap out of (laughs) Daniel Craig. Exactly. (laughs) So he gets in there. He introduces himself. He brings the whole rat story. And how they're the two rats. Um just an awesome performance by by Javier Bardem. Yeah. Not just as a Bond villain, but just as a character actor. You just he, you immediately bought into him. Oh, absolutely. All the idiosyncrasies, all of it. Everything. I mean, just down to the again, the the little part where he goes England. The Empire. MI6. <laughs> You're living in the ruin as well. At least here there are no old ladies giving orders and no little Gadgets from those fools in Q-Brand. Exactly. You know, all that little stuff adds so much to that character. And just his, you know, when he does that little flirty, flirty thing with him, and he's like, mm-hmm. oh, Mr. Bond. Oh. oh. A little, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. It would, anybody else delivering that line, it would have seemed ridiculous. You'd have laughed. Right. right. But you, well, you laugh, but you laugh for the right reason when he does right. it. Right. Because, because he's it being sounds... sarcastic. Exactly. Yeah. And because you immediately identified that's his character. So he managed to establish in two and a half minutes everything you needed to know about that character to carry you through. That's amazing. I mean, you could write that, but to have somebody that can pull that off that successfully, yeah. uh, just amazing. Absolutely. He makes and breaks that movie. One way or the other, I think he makes it. But. Yeah. little fun fact about that little scene with the... Yes. <laughs> with the little sexy, sexy, flirty, flirty bit. Apparently, Craig and Javier Bardem had to work through a case of the giggles when they shot that. Because who wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two grown men in the... Hello. Ooh. Mm. 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 (laughs) You're going to touch my inner leg now? Mm. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, he goes through the whole thing, takes Bond's handcuffs off, and it's funny. He goes from being super flirty to, like, pissed off Bond instantaneously as the hands come off. They go take their little walk. They go back out. Silva explains, you know, how everybody had to leave, and they they have time to decide what they wanted to take. Right. And this gives him clarity and all of this. He's basically just flapping his gums because, as you come to realize, he's just stalling. He knows everything that's going to happen is going to happen, which, by the way, Ben has some issues with, but we'll talk about that We'll here talk in about bit. that in a little bit. In a little bit. We get to where Severine is. Guess what? She's going to die. And dueling pistols? I mean, really? Where where it's, did he find them? It really is a unique scene, and it's, it is it is a little out of left field, but it also feels... I feel like Mendez, in a number of 
places in this movie really try to harken back to classic Bond elements. And I feel like this is one yeah. of them to have, you know, McAllen 30 year or whatever it 50 is. 50 year old or scotch. Or 50 year yeah. old scotch or whatever. And then to have dueling pistols like that. That feels very classic Bond type stuff. Yeah, it definitely has that Bond villain taking things over the top kind of feel to it. Yeah. Um, which again, he's able to sell, maybe not so much somebody else. Right. Um, but, you know, they go through the motions. You get to go first. Bond's like, I don't want to shoot her. I, I know I'm not going to hit her because, gosh, these are notoriously famous for not being very accurate to begin with. He shoots the rock. Silva shoots her in the gut, which, by the way, is the only way that that works. And I, I think Bond knew that going into it, that there was no way to sharpshoot that problem. Right. And he wasn't going to be able to hit something not vital, which is why he chose the rock. Right. If he actually tries to shoot the shot glass, he would blow off half of her head. Pretty much. Yeah. So down she goes. Well, actually, she didn't really go down either. She just sort of slumped up against that rock and stayed up, which was very creepy. I didn't like that at yeah. all. <laughs> but, you know, in true James Bond fashion, as he's trying to pretend I'm all wobbly and can't shoot, That's knocks funny. the gun out of the guy. He's got a gun up to his head, shoots the guy, shoots right. the other guy, shoots the third guy, shoots the fourth guy. And then Silva has the audacity to act surprised like any of this is happening. Right. Right. Then the helicopters show up. And I'm like, what would have happened if Bond had waited and stalled a little bit longer and the helicopter showed up before all this happened? Would Severine still be alive now? Right. That's an interesting thought. Or would maybe she still be dead because Bardian would have shot her anyway? Because that's clear what he wanted to do yeah. was to kill her. Her usefulness was over. So. Right. But, you know. That is an interesting theory, though. New thing from Q Branch. It's called, called a radio. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, does anybody actually want to know what the story would have been like if the helicopter hadn't shown up? Was he literally going to have to tie him up, drag him across the channel, get back onto the boat, sail the boat all the way back to England? I mean... He makes a raft. Yes, there's no boat. He just He's on a dinghy or something. They're rowing. That would have been an interesting meeting of the minds between the two of them as they're rowing back to England. Yeah, gun in one hand and a paddle in the other. He's like, fuck, this is going to take forever. And it's my bad arm. <laughs> Anyway, so they get back to England one way or the other, probably by helicopter. Yes. And we come into uh, M coming in to see uh, Mr. Silva in his Hannibal Lecter-like glass cage. Right. With the really cool photosensitive glass that frosts over. Yeah. Then gets clear. (laughs) I love that, actually. I thought that was super cool. It was very cool. I guess we could talk about my theory on glass prisons another day. (laughs) But M goes in. Right. M talks to him. M tries to act like she's all very nonchalant and doesn't give a shit and whatever else. But But you can see... He obviously affects her big time. Absolutely. You can tell from... She's very, like disturbed and startled by the whole thing. Right. She's, you can tell she's a set of unease just walking through when she realizes who he is. Yeah. And then after he takes the thing out of his mouth, cue the second. No, bad, this is the third. The, thir- the third. Oh, that's right. Third. Of, the third piece of bad CG, which is the, that mouth. It's not even the mouthpiece itself. It's, it's what his mouth looks like after he takes the mouthpiece out. That being said, even though it is kind of bad, it still spooks me out. Oh, it's very creepy. It's still, it still in a way works for me, even though I recognize, I'm like, is that artifacting I'm looking at right now in the in the render? I don't know, but 
Either way, it's still creepy. It's still creepy. It absolutely is. And you got to give it credit. Yeah. It was probably one of the first films that tried to do that, incorporated right. that well on a person that wasn't a CGI person anyway. Right. And again, Javier Bardem sells that shit. He totally does. Especially when he puts it back in and he does a little adjusty thing in his mouth. And... I know. Oh, God. And then he just, that laugh, that uh-huh. just insane laugh that he has afterwards. <laughs> Oh, so, you know, M knows who he is. They go walk out. She tells Bond, uh, I had to let him go, more or less, in right. order for the changeover with China trade, to go through. Yeah. Um, with absolutely no remorse, at least from what she's showing. Right. She tells Bond, get to work on the computer because, of course, James Bond's a computer expert, too. Of course. <laughs> I, I can drive a tractor. I can operate a computer. Why wouldn't that be Q's job? I don't. <laughs> Technically, it was. Technically, it was, but you but know, you need Bond's a James Bond to figure it to out. To solve for him. the the puzzle. <laughs> That's correct. Look, it's a word thing. Wait, don't you have a coffee mug that says Scrabble on it? Anyway, so they get in there. Q gets in. He's hacking the computer. He's being very lofty and look how great I am. And that was kind of the whole point of this scene. Was like, you are very good at what you do. But you're so good that you've blinded yourself that there might be somebody better. Right. Or somebody who could use your own smarty pants stuff against you. Right. And this is kind of, it. it's a trope where, you know, the computer guy thinks he's got everything under control and then ends up screwing himself. This doesn't just happen in this movie. But the fact that it took so long to get to that point really kind of grated on my nerves. <laughs> and I, this also brings up something that I definitely don't like in movies is the... Digital representation of what happens in a computer. Oh, boy. Yeah. Ooh, look at this ball of string with numbers on it. Yeah. This has been a thing since computers were things. Right. What's even worse is now Ben Whitshaw is basically narrating to you what you're seeing on the screen because what you see on the screen makes no sense to you whatsoever. (laughs) Until Bond goes, wait a minute, what's that? Right. And all of a sudden they line up together and it's a word. Hey! (laughs) And then all of a sudden his matchless knowledge of the tube system and discontinued lines because James Bond. Right. (laughs) They're suddenly able to figure everything out until... Ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. Why are these doors opening? They're escape hatches. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. When When he starts running, and let's face it, the only person who runs better in movies than Daniel Craig is Tom Cruise, and that's why I desperately want to watch them in some sort of a track film together. <laughs> but by the time Bond gets back and finds out that Silva has escaped, right. he didn't have a hatch go up. He pulled a grate off of the floor and climbed down it. Right. So why were the hatches popping open? And also, if you're going to build a secure prison in an existing tunnel structure, why are you building that secure prison over an open tube line. <laughs> Why? I mean, the only thing that the the one thing you can say about that though is they were obviously desperate after the original MI6 blew up, and it was a hasty decision to move down underground. So maybe that was sort of temporary. That's the I'm, only. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I don't buy. It. I know. I know. You I don't... mean why wouldn't they send him to an actual federal prison where? That shit would never happen. Or why don't you put him in a room where there's a train that doesn't run underneath it? Okay. <laughs> in the Death Star, you had the garbage chute underneath the prison. That's how you escape. This yeah. is the same thing. He went in the garbage compactor on this one, but it didn't try and squish him <laughs> right. at the end of it. So Said he just got a ride. He did get a ride. So he escapes, more or less. Bond finds him, chases him. 
They get into the tube station. Okay, okay, okay. Can I start? Can I? Can I yeah, just? Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the part for me, just me. It's just me, where things feel a little bit fantastical, in the sense that we're supposed to believe that Silva had planned to get captured, planned to have his laptop hacked, so he could unleash a program on MI6, which would unlock him, so he could escape, so he could meet his guys at a precise place and be given a cop uniform, so Bond could follow him, so he could blow up part of a tunnel, so a subway train fell right there at that exact moment and nearly kills Bond so we could go to the hearing where M was and kill her. That seems a little too perfectly timed. Granted, he's a genius. And honestly, everything up until this point that he allowed himself to get captured for his computer to get, you know, taken and, you know, has has a program on his computer specifically for this situation that would then hack into MI6, which would then get him out of there. That's fine. That's actually fine. That's all fine. The part for me is how on earth would his henchmen or his people that he's working with know exactly where he's going to be at the exact time? There's a million people in the tube. It's rush hour. Oh, yeah. You know, like that part of it, that's the part where I'm like, okay. Yeah, and I I don't argue with you on that point. I think everything that got him in to the building, I understood. If you take the assumption that those interrogation rooms were already there, right? Because I think they established this was a backup bunker to begin with that they already called. Oh yeah, it. yeah. So he may have known where the prison was. He may have known all. And those he may other have things. known that since since he was the guy that blew up MI six, he knew where they were going to go next. Right. So I think everything up to the point where the train happens, right? I'm willing to suspend disbelief See, enough the- to go. That the timing could have happened. He could have had two guys dressed up as cops walking around with the package waiting for him because he knew the way he was coming. Yeah. He knew that they would try and get the police into the tube station. That's how he was able to pull off the whole look at all the cops thing. I buy that too. What I don't buy is the fact that he knew that Bond was going to stop him at that exact moment unless he was waiting for him to show up. And even then, how did you know the train was going to be there? How do you always... You don't. That for me is the linchpin that makes things fall apart for me a little bit. But the more... The more I think about it, that's the only one. Everything else, I'll give it to you. If you can suspend disbelief, you can take it to a certain point. That right. was a little too coincidental for my liking. Yeah. Also, I'm sorry, are you not James Bond? You can't shoot through uh, a three-foot hole in a metal ladder and just shoot the bad guy? Right? Why doesn't anybody right? shoot the damn bad guy? Well, and that's the thing. Again, this is the movie where the villain has the good guy gun, mm-hmm. and the good guy has the bad guy gun that right. can't hit anything. Right. Well, and he says, I won't miss like he's meant to do it that way. So instead of hitting the guy in the three foot square, you meant to hit the little six inch metal strip. I'm sorry, James Bond. Even I don't buy that. And if you shot him right there in the (laughs) tube, nothing gets blown up. M is fine. Nobody dies in the hearing room. This is a little harder for me to believe than all of the other things. (laughs) If you take on fact that James Bond is James Bond, why didn't he just shoot him and be over with it? Because there wouldn't be a movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, he gets out, gets into his really cool land cruiser, Land Rover police car. Oh, wait. Can I just say the one thing? I yeah. just This one funny moment before, before that when Bond is in the tube <laughs> and the old couple that's watching Bond oh, yeah. leap onto the back of the train.
he's keen to get home. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I forgot and the, the tube thing, which is even funnier, is the fact that Q is berating him for being like not a normal person. Oh, you've never been in the tube before, eh, 007? This is what it's like all the time. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you just see the look on Craig's face like, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, you <laughs> snot. Or I'll just steal the car that's supposed to be for, you know, 008 in the next movie. <laughs> right. And of course, you know, again, but harking back to that scene, he's following him. He loses him kind of with the police. He sees the open door that Silva clearly left open for him to go in there. It's like, oh, oh look, he left a trail of breadcrumbs. <laughs> uh-huh. Hey, wait a minute. That might come in later in the movie. Hmm. Hmm. Ugh. Yes. Okay. So they get on the train. He gets to the thing. Bang, bang, boom, train crashes into the car, drives over. James Bond has to run to the place oh, that yeah, Silva is driving is. to. Right. You can't get a car from somebody? You can't even like get a, get in a cab or... Anything, right? Anything. But just, we get to watch him do the his, Tom, his, Tom Cruise run. Right, his stiff little run. And you notice he wasn't very winded when he got in. So he's in amazing shape regardless of now. what everybody says. Well, exactly. Now. Well, now, yeah. And so... <laughs> Silva goes in with his dudes. I did like the little subtle part when he walks to the metal detector and it lights up after he shoots the three security guards. <laughs> it didn't go bling, 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 but the light went off at least. So, <laughs> right. You know, kudos to reality on that one. Right. Um, the continuity uh, producer was, he was spot on. on spot it. on on that one. So he goes in, starts shooting everybody. Somehow can't manage to kill the one person he showed up to get there right? for. I mean, he's like right there, just. Right in front of her. And she's not moving. She's sort of accepting her fate at this right. point. He gets Mallory, but she's still there. What is he waiting for? And then Bond comes in, saves the day, kicks a pistol to Money Penny. Money Penny starts shooting. Mallory gets a gun. He starts shooting. Chaos ensues. Bond gives the wink. Wink. <laughs> Shoots the uh, fire extinguishers, which, by the way, don't work that way. No. <laughs> it wouldn't just... <laughs> because wouldn't it, wouldn't it just be like that, that foamy... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, those those could have been those kind of fire extinguishers, but they're under such intense pressure that if you shot them, the whole thing, the would, whole explode. thing would have exploded. It would be a bomb, it would leak. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but okay, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Creates a smoke screen, walks across. Nobody manages to hit him while he's walking across. Right, because because he's James Bond. Right. Well, and smoke screens, as we all know, are bulletproof. Of course they are. That's why you get them out of the back of the Aston. You don't even need that bulletproof shield on that thing as long as you've got smoke pieces. Anyway, so Silver realizes he ain't going to win this one. Gets in the car, drives off. Bond gets him. Now, here's one thing, though. Do you think Bond realized that was Silver driving off in the police car when he goes out there? Because you see Silver pulling off into the distance right. as Bond gets out of the wherever they're at. They're having the hearing. Sees Silver pull off, That's right. looks to his right, and then goes over and then... Tanner comes out with them, puts her in the car, that's and right. he drives that's off. Right. That's right. And off they go, the, the, the old married couple. <laughs> <laughs> I'm to be the bait. Fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> so they drive off in the car, and uh, Bond gets on the radio, the ubiquitous radio in this movie from Q Branch. Right. Um, well, he's in the company car, though. I realize that, but right. it's all for Q. Right. Because he's talking to Q, and he's like, okay, uh, leave a trail of breadcrumbs that only Silva can find. You can do it because you're awesome. You already told me that. <laughs> you sure you can make sure it's not too big, not too small? And, well, of course, Q has to explain how difficult it is to Tanner right. of what he's doing and how awesome he is while he's doing it. Of course. 
Um, and in the midst of putting these breadcrumbs, Mallory shows up and they're like, oh, crap, Dad's here. Dad's here. <laughs> exactly. And Dad's like, oh, that's brilliant. Why don't you do this? And I'll tell you how to do your job even better because honestly, Q, that's all anybody's going to be doing in these movies is telling you how much better they are than you because you walk around thinking you're better <laughs> than everybody else. Exactly. Maybe that's why he gets so much abuse, Inspector. Maybe. Because he gets kind of... He really does. Kind of a verbally abused inspector. So maybe that's why. <laughs> just because he's just kind of this arrogant little shit yeah. in nobody, this one. Nobody likes a smart ass. <laughs> so then we sort of roll into the final act of this movie and sometimes referred to as the Home Alone Act. But <laughs> nonetheless, I like it with the exception of one very specific thing, but we'll get to that later. So Bond and M, just before they head off to S Scotland, they uh, go pick up the old DB5 since it won't be picked up on scanners because it's old school. Heck yeah. <laughs> so then they head out and again, the, the cinematography from Deacons during this area, all the driving shots and everything, just just gorgeous stuff. So they get, they have that little moment on the side of the road, maybe the pee break, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they pull over and they sort of have this little personal moment, which is kind of nice. M says, you know, the, the line about orphans always make the best recruits. And she's clearly trying to sort of, I don't know, get a little closer to Bond, maybe because she knows that her time is, is coming. But I think that's part of why that scene exists. Yeah. Not just for the benefit of telling us more about Bond. Right. It's definitely, I think, to provide some closure to what's going to happen in the end. Right. So... They get to Skyfall only to discover that almost everything has been cleaned out since the estate thought that James was dead. And I find it really funny when they first pull up and she's like, M's like, well, I see why you never come out here. And I'm like, are you kidding? It's beautiful. <laughs> he never comes out here because it's beautiful. Maybe she's just an indoors kind of person. <laughs> you know, it could be. <laughs> so we get into uh, Skyfall and we meet Kincaid, who is just such a great character. Every interaction Bond has with Kincaid is just a quote waiting to happen. So we realize that there's nothing in this house or barely anything in this house, except we've got one hunting rifle and it apparently has unlimited rounds in it. Indeed. <laughs> As we'll soon find out. One pistol, which he already had with three clips. I did count. A knife, because sometimes the old ways are the best. That's right. And then we had some old ass dynamite. And a tank of gas. And apparently lots of baggies and wood screws. Well, of course you're going to have those in the house. <laughs> when you're packing up all your shit, you need baggies and wood screws, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, little side note during this scene. I love the fact that Kincaid kind of has almost like a crush on M. Yes. Calling her Emma. I'd like to have a little time with you in the priest hole. <laughs> Emma. Well, I do like the fact that Kincaid mistakes what her name is. Right. Because Bond doesn't introduce her by her name. Right. So he's just sort of like, oh, I must have heard Emma. Sure. And, and she he just makes the assumption and right. she doesn't correct him. No. Anyway, we see the uh, Home Alone style booby traps getting all set up. A little side note again, like I said, I, I occasionally go on the internet. Apparently, a lot of people on the internet hate that she says the F word during this moment where they're waiting around for Silva to show up and she says, I fucked up. It's like, well, you know, she is M and mm -hmm. she sends people to their death on a regular basis. Why wouldn't she use the F word? Well, I can see the argument where it takes it out of her character. But maybe, by the same but... token, maybe that's because she's kind of letting her guard down at this point and not right. being 
M, air quotes, I know you can't see him, air quotes. Right. And just being who she is as a person. And this is definitely her sort of acknowledging that this is all because of her. This is her fault. This is years of things that have happened that right. recklessness that she's had that now she's sort of having to owe up to. So then Silva's first wave of guys show up and Bond uses the DB5 to help dispose of them. That part, I, I definitely enjoyed that. Absolutely. And then Kincaid gives them a proper welcome to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> like the old mirror trick. Yeah, that was pretty great. Oh, well, the other thing about that too is apparently at this point, his shotgun is like a cannon. Pretty much. Because it just sends those people. Well, <laughs> like, <laughs> and of course, you know, you realize that the shorter the barrel, the wider the dispersible, the, the less accurate you can technically right. be. So, it's like, uh, I mean, up close, you would get people blown back like that. From the distance he was from those guys, man, he was totally... You'd be lucky to hit him at all. He was Call of Duty magic shotgunning those guys. <laughs> so then after the first round of baddies get died, that's when Silva arrives in the helicopter with boom, 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 blasting. Yeah. Way, is... to, way to rip off Apocalypse Now. <laughs> And uh, at that point, M, who is hiding a gunshot wound, and Kincaid, they head into the priest hole and escape out to the chapel. And then this is the part where, you know, Silva starts unleashing his second wave on Bond, and Bond's just trying to weather the storm. And then he destroys the DB5. And damn it, that is the last straw. That's when Bond suddenly gets so mad. It's like, everything else is fine. It's like, you know, you're trashing my parents' house my legacy, right? That's fine, but the DB five. Oh hell no! A man has his limits, man. <laughs> Do you like how Silva was just like throwing incendiary grenades through teeny tiny little holes? Yeah, like it was nothing. Just Whee! casual, like he's. I can't stress the fact that he wasn't like he was throwing them through big holes. He's all like, "Whoop! There it goes." It's like were those CGI grenades? And he was just making a general direction, and they all went in. Or was he that good a shot? Or did he have to do it in several takes for each one? Right. <laughs> Again, I kind of hope he's like, oh, no, I got this. Boop, 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 boop. That's all Javier Bardem right it's, there. That's right. Just... Like one, one take Javier. That's what they used to call him on the set, I hear. Indeed. Okay, so yeah. the <laughs> Grenades are going in, stuff's Grenades on fire. Grenades are going in, stuff's on fire. He destroys the DB5, and that is the last straw, damn it. So... That's when he lights the dynamite on top of the gas tank and runs down the priest hole to try and escape while the explosion destroys everything. Literally everything. Literally everything. Helicopter, baddies, the house, all of it. And that's when we get to my wife's least favorite part of this movie, which is you then see Kincaid and M making their way to the chapel. And the reason you know that that's where they're at is because they've got a flashlight on. Mm -hmm. Like the fire from the castle wouldn't light your way to get to the chapel. No, you've got to use your flashlight so that that way Silva can see exactly where you are. Well, in Kincaid's defense, he seemed like he was more bluster and not quite as bright as he was trying to let on. Right. And if Bond did specifically say, don't use your flashlight, probably didn't occur to him. Right. And M was a little too... Injured. to be thinking about it. But yeah, it, it's again, it's another one of those things where if somebody had just done something, the movie would have had a much more logical progression. Right. So 
it, sometimes you just have to do stupid things to make a movie get to its natural conclusion, <laughs> I guess. So they all make their way to the chapel, but not before Bond has a little skirmish on the ice. A little <laughs> shooting the ice in a circle to make mm-hmm. a hole to fall into to avoid gunfire from other baddies and Silva. Right. And, you know, takes the guy out. Couple Thanks. of knee kicks to the face. I always find it really strange, and I've seen this in multiple movies now, where the good guy is able to choke out a bad guy underwater. It never entirely makes sense to me. Maybe it's because it's you're under duress and, and your throat muscles are completely squeezed off, and that's why the aggressor lives and the person with that's in the headlock or whatever dies well one thing you'll notice hearkening back to atomic blonde this guy actually let a bunch of air out before he died right but he didn't go into the whole paroxysms of i can't breathe and i'm drowning right which leads you to believe he was dead beforehand but at least there was an acknowledgement there was no more air in him right when he went down (laughs) and of course bond he's like oh crap i don't know where i am now i need to go get this flare and he swims down and he gets the flare and this is my Favorite part of the entire movie. We didn't get one Wilhelm scream in this movie, but when he lights that flare off, you do get the photon torpedo sound from Star Trek. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I, I listened to it three times to make sure I wasn't hearing things. <laughs> well, you know, you're an expert on that sort of <laughs> stuff, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Everybody, just listen very carefully. It's hard to hear over the music fanfare, but it's there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of Star Trek goes a long way. <laughs> So then, after that, Silva assumes that Bond is... Toast. Toast. So we catch up to Silva going into the chapel and finding M there, and she's already on the verge of death anyway, and it becomes apparent that Silva's endgame is just sort of this desperate suicidal thing at this point. All of his all of his men are dead, and he doesn't have a way out of there at this point. Right. So, And because it is so personal, he tries to make her kill them both at the same time in a really creepy, kind of believable way. Right. And really affecting. And then that's when, of course, Bond comes in, sneaks in. Anger knife! <laughs> and throws that big old knife, because, as we all know... The old ways sometimes are the best. That's right. So he gets hit in the in the back and he's, oh, I'm so angry that you got me. <laughs> he really is. He's more angry than he is in pain. And Absolutely. So close. <laughs> so close. And he instead of choosing to then end M in his last few moments of, of life, he just chooses to yell at James Bond and growl at him. And then roll his eyes. And yes, at the very end. Like, you, you son of a bitch. He's like, really? You got me. Shit. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> so then we have the uh, that last little moment where M dies in Bond's arms. And it's actually, it's, it's a good scene. I think it's a good little moment. Yeah, particularly... The one thing I noticed, aside from the dialogue and everything else, mm-hmm. is you can actually tell that Roger Craig, or the Roger Craig, Roger Craig, you know, the <laughs> running back from the uh, San Francisco 49ers, uh, Daniel Craig is crying, even though he's soaking wet. Yeah. You can tell that those are tears coming off of his eyes, not the water that's been dripping down his right. face. Well, even his eyes are, are kind of red and... Yeah, it, it he sells it. I mean, oh, yeah. he, he does a really good job there. Again, yeah, it's a great scene and, and I feel like it's a fitting ending so then we get the little epilogue where bond is on top of the building with a great view it's a great shot one of my favorite shots in the whole movie and eve comes out there and gives him the 
the bulldog. Gives him the bulldog. And then we sort of discovered at that point, I believe, that's when Moneypenny uh, tells him that she's done in the field. Right. Which I'm kind of on two sides of. I'm, there's part of me that thinks that it feels a little bit like a cop-out, like we could have seen her do more. Yeah. Um, because Naomi Harris seems physically capable anyway of being a more... Well, and, and she is that inspector. Oh, yeah. You so know. she does sort of come back, and she is in the field. It's just, I, I guess you'll take the desk job as a secretary, but it feels a little demeaning. I don't know. I but think... I guess but I guess the thing is is in the past too, even in bonds of past, Money Penny has been out in the field as well. Like way back to Lois Maxwell, there are a couple moments where she would hand something off to Bond or hand something off to somebody. Right. So she's more than a secretary. She does have she has her field agent moments. It's just not it's not gonna be all the time and she's not gonna be always carrying a gun on her. Right. Well, and I think the character made a, a life choice as a character. Right. That, that wasn't the kind of life she wanted to, to live. And I think that Mallory's character, and you see this more in Spectre as well, Mallory's character actually respects her for who she is and what she can do across the board. Right. And so that may have made it a bit more of an appealing choice for her to do that because she knew she was going to be working for someone who respected who she was and allow her to do what she wanted to do without necessarily have to go out and turn into the next James Bond. Right. Because she's also seen what being in the field for any length of time will do to people. Right. So we find that out, and then we all head back downstairs into the office, and <laughs> we discover that Eve is, in fact, Money Penny. Yeah. She That's shot it. him. He almost killed him. She might or might not have slept with him. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. All this time. But and we'll- he never got formally introduced. What kind of British manners are we talking about here? Rude. I know. Damn you, James Bond. Etiquette. It's the Scots, man. (laughs) (laughs) So then we have the final scene, the reset, the official reset. You get the padded door. Oh, the padded door. The padded door. You get the padded door. You walk in. Looks just like M's office needs to look. And then you get the, are you ready to get back to work, 007. And it's it's a perfect, perfect, perfect ending to this to this movie. And it also feels a little bit like a midlife crisis ending. Yes. <laughs> because it's like, you're old, but I know you still got it in you. That's right. <laughs> so, so that's that. That's Skyfall. And uh, I guess final thoughts? For me, while Skyfall is not a perfect James Bond movie, it is a damn good one. And even aside from the slightly unbelievable end to the second act where Silva escapes, it's an interesting experiment in giving the good guy a bad guy gun. And it looks so good, it's paced well, and the relationship between M and Bond really creates a level of meaning that goes well beyond what most Bond movies and a lot of spy movies in general ever aspire to do. That being said, I don't always want like a deep emotional spy movie. Sometimes I just want to watch cool shit blow up and gadgets. And sometimes I want Bond to sleep with lots of women. And (laughs) it's the one thing that kind of occasionally gets in the way for me with this movie is that it's so serious and so realistic that you miss out on that lover man element of James Bond that you used to get, especially back in the Roger days, mm-hmm. somewhat so in the Pierce days. I mean, I think about Lazenby mm-hmm. <laughs> in Majesties. Holy cow. Yeah. So 
I don't know. There are people out there, I think, uh, Bond purists who think that he should just be a misogynistic asshole all of the time. Well, I don't want that. I don't want him to be a misogynist either. I do want him to be a whore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think that, that you have a problem where if you, you don't go all full tilt into it, right. you can either be all in or you got to dial it back a lot. Right. And I think in this day and age, all in isn't going to cut the mustard anymore. Yeah. So you have to pick, okay, to use your term, the whoring um, a, a little bit more subjectively and plot-oriented right. wise. Right. Because... Um, yeah, we it all needs know. it needs to fulfill a purpose. It can't just be Bond sleeping with somebody to sleep with somebody. Right. There needs to be a purpose behind it. I just like to see Bond being the smooth, cool guy. Absolutely. And I think he kind of was in Skyfall. You don't really see it a lot in Spectre, mm-hmm. but I mean, he, he's played that part reasonably well. He certainly did it in Casino Royale. Right. Didn't really have the opportunity in Quantum of Solace. Right. Casino's great because you have that moment where he's like, where he's in the car with Vesper and he's like, you're not my type. And she's like, what, smart? And he's like, no, single. (laughs) 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 Like that little moment. Right. And I think you can get away with that. But I I don't think, I think the days of seeing two or three Bond women in in a Bond movie are done. Oh, they are. They definitely are. You're going to have one strong female character. That's going to pull it through. Sure. You're going to get Money Penny in all of them. So you're going to have right. two strong female characters sure. in it. You may get the one that's going to give up information and die. Right. It's a plot point you have to get through. But yeah. You'll I, probably see a lot less women that instantly die because they sleep with James Bond. Right. Well, I would hope anyway. That's a little lazy. I mean, <laughs> let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And how about you? Well, I, mean, I think you covered a lot of the good stuff uh, as far as it goes. I liked it mostly because it wasn't very old James Bondy. Yeah. Um, I felt like it was more of a, a straight-up thriller with James Bond in it. The thing I've always liked about Daniel Craig's movies and his interpretation of James Bond is he's believable. Absolutely, yeah. And so when you take a credible character and put him in super incredible situations, you get Spectre, which I appreciated for the fact that he made the Sean Connery James Bond movie. So now he wanted to make the Roger Moore James Bond movie. Right. And so I don't know, maybe No Time to Die is going to be the Timothy Dalton James Bond movie. I don't know. I would love that, actually. Uh, Yeah, that would be kind of cool to see as long as we don't get to Pierce Brosnan. I think we're stopping, so we're probably good. (laughs) But I enjoy being able to watch his movies as spy movies without all the baggage from all the other Bond films. Right. So there's definitely that. I think, in my mind, Silva is the best bad guy that Bond has ever faced because he's smarter than Bond. Because Bond is always chasing him through the entire film. And so... He never really catches him. He never really does. Because at the end of the day, if he'd gotten there 30 seconds later, Silva won. Right. And that's the beauty of that whole thing. Which is one of the reasons why I enjoy watching it. I mean, the dude from Quantum of Solace, I hated him. I didn't mind Lashif so much, but Lashif really felt like that two-dimensional Bond bad guy. Right. He didn't have any depth to make you really give a crap. Mr. Right. White, you felt more about. Yes, absolutely. And it was nice that they tied him in into Spectre in the way that they did. But like we had talked about this before. My last favorite bad guy was Christopher Walken from A View to a Kill. <laughs> Um, because it's Christopher Walken. Well, because it's Christopher <laughs> Walken, but he was also smarter than James Bond. 
the character was genetically enhanced to be a genius. Right. uh, Almost pulls off what he needs to do, just dies in a much more spectacular way, or did he? Mm. And I'm I'm not even going to go into the whole theory that I have about Zorn's character and Silva's character. But maybe in another day. Maybe when we watch A View to a Kill, I'll bring it around there. Oh, goodness. I'm looking forward to that discussion. <laughs> Excellent. So that's that. That is that. Join us next time on Central Intelligence Cinema for a review of the 2015 movie, the Guy Ritchie reboot of Man from Uncle. Starring Superman and the Lone Ranger. Hot damn. That sounds <laughs> mad good. <laughs> All right, well, I'm Ben. And I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions, more martinis, and more mayhem.